I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring email. On this week's episode, I'm sitting down with Jill Scalamander, the powerhouse CEO behind Beekman 1802. From a farm in rural New York to the cutting edge of prestige skincare, Beekman has had quite the journey and Jill is leading the charge into its next chapter. We're talking goat milk magic, crazy sales growth, and what it really means to be clinically kind. As always, thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the show. Where are you based out of? So I I live in New York City, but I work in Schenectady, New York, which is about 20 minutes north of Albany. Is it a farm that you're working on? No. So um, the farm is in Sharon Springs, New York, which is about 45 miles from here. Um, So the the team is working in an office um, with the farm being relatively close by. That makes sense. Sounds. I'd love to work at the farm. My gosh, it is absolutely magnificent. (laughs) It's a hundred goats and this beautiful farmland. It's amazing. I think what the boys have done with it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's why I asked. It sounded like uh, an amazing. Oh, you have to come visit. Where are you based? I'm in uh, Orange County, California. Ah, okay. That's where my husband is from, Santa Ana. Oh wow. Yeah. I'm close by. I'm like five minutes away. Okay. So we have family yeah. there. Where uh, Where are you from originally? Are you from New York? I'm from New York, yes. Not from Manhattan. I'm from Long Island, uh, a little beach town. But uh, no, I've never moved away except for college. And what, uh, what did you study in college? Uh, <laughs> I was a language major, thinking I was going to work for the UN as a translator, uh, and then realizing there was no way I was going to do that. Um, And someone mentioned, I did a little internship while I was in college at a fashion house in Paris, and I loved it. And someone suggested, you know, fashion is a lot like beauty. Why don't you try beauty? And, you know, I just tried it. I had no direction. I said, okay, sounds good. And then you know that I have never left beauty. So um, right out of college. What, what kind of position did you start in? Well, I started as an assistant. Um, I was working at Revlon. I was in product development. And I grew into product development and then marketing and then general management. And then uh, ultimately, here I am, a, a president and a CEO. That's amazing. Uh, what do you... What do you feel like really lended to you being able to climb mm. climb up the ladder in that environment? And were you really passionate about the product and the yes. space that you were space. working in? I always saw beauty, you know, and not from a vanity perspective. I saw beauty as a way for women and men uh, to feel confident about themselves. You know, it's just amazing when your skin feels clear and your hair feels healthy and your makeup looks great. It's amazing how much better you feel about yourself. So for me, it was a tool to self-confidence. Any category, fragrance, hair care, skin care, makeup, I've done them all. Um, and, it, you know, no matter which category it is, um, there's a way for you to t- self-care and feel better. And did you, did you get experience in different departments uh, yeah, yeah. throughout your time? Yeah, I started in product development, then I went into creative, then I went into marketing, then I went into sales. So I had a lot of functional departments experience, as well as I first I started in the mass market with Revlon, and then I went to Prada and started up their beauty as a startup in luxury and then i went to avon in that cell you know direct door to door um and then department store and went global you know did the global uh, multi-market thing and voila i've had so i've tried to approach beauty from every angle from every channel 
um, so that I could have a whole 360 experience. Yeah, I was going to say for your role now, having like the hands-on experience, also interesting that you went to Prada and did like a startup within Mm-hmm. A larger organization. What was that like? It was it was fascinating because we were a little incubator in the big world of fashion, um, in a category that no one knew anything about except our team. We were a small team, and I worked directly with Future Prada, who had a vision. And this is a woman who has vision, and to bring out that vision of what she wanted was like probably the most unique experience I've had in my career. And I've worked in many companies. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, also, the fact that you have like startup experience, I feel like most people that are running large organizations and come from like somewhat of a corporate background yeah. rarely have both sides, right? Yes, absolutely. But I, you know, I have a pattern in my career. So I started at Revlon, spent 15 years there. And then I went to Prada, which was a startup. And then I stayed there five years. And then I went to Avon, which is a big global Thomas. And I traveled the world in their, you know, 45 markets. Um, and then I went small. I went into private equity um, and uh, ran a few brands and sold a few brands, came back to Cody in a large conglomerate and then Shiseido in a large conglomerate. And then I came to back to private equity with Beekman 1802. So I've seen many lenses. I love both sides. You know, one side is where you have the resources to do what you know you need to do in building a brand. And the other side is completely different where you don't have the resources and you have to be creative and figure out how to best make the amount of noise and grow a brand with minimal resources. And I love that challenge as well. And what what attracted you to the, the Beekman opportunity? So I've always loved working for brands with a purpose, like a a social purpose. Uh, When I was working at Philosophy, uh, we had the Hope and Grace Foundation for Mental Health. Then when I went to Bare Minerals, we did a a give back program for women in education. Um, So when this was approached to me, I loved the fact of two things. It is a brand that's made of milk, happens to be goat milk, And I have always believed in the healing power of milk for skin. My dermatologist taught me that many years ago, and I am a total believer. And then on the second piece of it, it was about kindness, and I love the social purpose of spreading kindness around the world, which is the mission of this brand. So the two ingredients on this brand are goat milk and kindness, and I immediately fell in love. It was so clear. And and can you tell the founding story, like how the brand was founded? Sure. So it was founded by um, two men who are a couple, uh, Dr. Brent Ridge and Josh Purcell. And they were, uh, they bought a farm in Sharon Springs, New York, and had to figure out how to pay the mortgage. So they went on Amazing Race season 23 and one and paid off their mortgage And then the financial crisis of 2008 hit and their farmer next door, Farmer John, uh, lost his lease. And he knocked on the door and asked Josh and Brent if they wouldn't mind, um, you know, if he could graze his goats on their land. And they said, absolutely. And that was their first act of kindness was giving their land to Farmer Joel for his 100 goats. And then they had to think, well, how do we you know, benefit from the goats. How do we, you know, how do we make money? They had recently lost their jobs in New York City and they knew that they had to make something um, with themselves. So they decided to make goat milk soap and they had the entire neighbor and community in Sharon Springs around the kitchen table helping to make goat milk soap from Farber John's goats. And I will say to today, 54 million bars of soap later, 
Oh my God. Um, we are a, I would say, the world's leading goat milk brand. And we've expanded into body care products and now skincare products, a few hair care products. Um, and it's a, and it's a big success and it's a beautiful story. And then at the heart of their story is the goat milk, which has 34 active nutrients inside it. It's really an efficacious skincare ingredient that transforms sensitive skin and it has kindness. And that's what this brand is all about. Kindness to skin, kindness to animals, kindness to the community and kindness to the self. What an amazing uh, story. Did they have any background in the space? Was goat milk like a a known ingredient before? So what happened was they were making the goat milk and they had people buying it and people writing to them saying, wow, this goat milk has transformed my skin. I had eczema. It's gone. I had psoriasis. It's gone. So um, Dr. Brent Ridge, who's a, a medical doctor, he went and looked into the science, like, well, so what is in goat milk that would literally get rid of eczema on your, on your skin? And he realized the power of goat milk and the fact that it has the same pH as skin, so your, your skin readily absorbs it, accepts it. It has 34 active nutrients inside it, prebiotics, lactic acid, vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, um, and realized it's a powerful nutrient, that can really help skin. The skin loves it because it's very biomimetic to the skin. So he knew that there was something to this and then expanded it and did clinical trials and, you know, really um, went after, after sensitive skin because of the benefit of this is really that it can transform sensitive skin into non-sensitive skin. So there's a lot of science to it. It started off as a beautiful, heartwarming story about goats and the farm and an act of kindness. And it has transformed into a skin health brand based on two ingredients, kindness and goat milk. That is amazing. I mean, crazy for someone to find, to like discover an ingredient and product like that with no background in skincare or beauty and then also to build such a big yeah. business. So that was over the power of community. They had their neighbors, you know, uh, all gathered around, as I said, at the dining room table and helped them. And so that's why the, act, the, 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 the DNA of kindness inside this brand is super important because they got their start by being kind to a neighbor and then their neighbors being kind to them and helping them. So it's, you know, a powerful story and they live in, they live and breathe with intention around kindness. And it's a very important piece and pillar of this brand. And in terms of private equity, were you part of the, uh, I don't know if any of this is like off limits for me to ask, by the way. I'll so tell you if it's off limits, but I'm sure uh, it's fine. Were you involved in the like discovery of the opportunity before the private equity group bought and took over the brand? I wish I could say yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Someone had reached out to me who was working with the private equity team and asked me my thoughts about the brand. And I was very, uh, I was a big advocate for it. Um, like, you know, I was like, this is it's a very special brand, unlike differentiated from the rest of the beauty world. Um, no, but I was asked to come aboard after the private equity had had bought it and uh, they asked me to come aboard and help to scale it. And so my role here is I'm, I'm like a conductor of an orchestra. There's a beautiful team and my, I, my role was to come in. I had the beauty experience. So it was, and the, and the team here didn't have beauty experience. I think it was one person who had worked in beauty before on the team and was, I came in to help them, you know, really scale it build the global footprint, you know, bring out the science and the efficacy to, you know, just make it bigger, get a retail footprint because it was really built on TV, QVC and HSN. And so the thesis for the private equity company was to make it a much more retail driven brand, take it international, scale it and bring and bring skincare to the forefront because it was a bigger body care brand than a skincare brand at the time. 
So it was very clear what we needed to do. And I had a beautiful brand and a fabulous team. And I, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. Do you feel like this is closer to your startup experience? Mm -hmm. Or is it kind of a hybrid between the two because you have the resources of private equity and the environment of a startup in terms of the team? So I had had, after I left Avon, I went into private equity and did, worked on Frederick Fakai shampoo and hair, all their hair products. And so I had that experience of going into a big, um, from a big brand to a smaller brand and working within private equity. So I liken it to that experience where, you know, it is not a startup. This is, you know, this is a brand that is, that was born around 2010, um, so it's been around 13 years, but, you know, it has the ability and the vision of growth all over it. Yeah. And, and when you come into a, uh, a new situation like that, what, what is your main goal in the early stages? Are you just absorbing learning and, uh, kind of taking in the, the culture behind the brand mm -hmm. yes and just to make sure that there's resources and processes that can scale the brand you know if, you know, that to make sure as though that if we had a big order we can deliver it so you know my my focus was really more about um, bringing a you know demand planning and, and, and more supply chain focus so that we were ready to get bigger orders and to scale and then selling to, you know, I had many contacts with retailers in my career. And so, you know, working with the retailers, presenting the brand, getting their enthusiasm and buy-in, and then building it at retail. How long does a process like this take? Or like, what is your time horizon for success within within uh, scaling a brand like this at this stage? Um, so this brand at this stage, which has has the beautiful DNA, just maybe a little bit more emphasis in facial skincare, a little more emphasis at retail versus TV shopping, I would say that within four years, um, we could double the size of this brand and really get it into a great place for a potential sale. Wow. Uh, I mean, quick, but also like you were saying, the foundation Was of there. everything has already been built. Yeah. And um, do you feel like the differentiating factor of the product and also the founding story is like the main main thing behind behind that foundation? So the differentiating story is about um, the the goat milk and how every product has goat milk and the benefits of goat milk. So it has a science, but it's about the kindness as well. And so those two elements together make it a very differentiated brand. So, you know, we have a purpose, which is to spread kindness. And we do, we do much in kindness. We celebrate nurses, we give donations to, to people in need. We, um, you know, teach, actually do workshops in kindness. Um, so, you know, that's a very, you know, that's a very differentiating, you know, position because we have both the IQ of goat milk and the EQ of kindness. And the second thing besides those the two ingredients is this is a brand. Now picture the five rings of the, of the Olympics and it basically sits in the wellness space, the clean beauty space, the clinical space, and the natural space. So it is, you know, our sweet spot is, you know, in the center of all those rings. And that's a very unique positioning because there tends to be a clinical brand, a science back brand, a, a natural brand, and we're all those things, you know? So we, we all, all those movements in one brand is also very differentiating. Was that an intentional decision on, in part by the founders as they were developing the product? Or was that a happenstance of the nature of goat milk? I think it was the evolution of nature of goat milk. I think that when they realized when they first launched and then recognized how this was changing people's skin, I think that's when they realized 
how to bring it to the next phase and then the following phase. So I don't think it was the intention from day one, but it clearly became the evolution. And in terms of making impact, I mean, you're making big strides in a four-year period to double a business. Um, how are you? How do you view like placing your bets on priorities when you do enter into a, a brand like this? That's a that's a great question. And I will say, when you when you walk into an organization um, that has built a beautiful brand and has scaled it to a certain point, but now comes the point where we do need priorities. And we do need to make sure that we address things so that we can fulfill things. So that is one of the things that I've brought is, that's great. Let's just make sure that we are all aligned with the five things we need to do to grow this brand and stay focused on them and prioritize them. And then everything else would be a nice to have. And we do. We, we set ourselves a mission and a blueprint of what needs to evolve. And so when some things come and it doesn't really, you know, fit into that, that blueprint of what we need to achieve in three to four years, um, then, you know, we park it to see, you know, when, it, when that would be a, the right proper time. How often are you doing planning in terms of setting those priorities? Like, is that a is that over a four-year period that you're viewing like this Absolutely. is our mission for that four-year period? Here's our five things that we're going after and we need to keep the direction throughout the, this time period? So those five things we established day one and they don't change. Maybe how we get there will evolve every year. But those five things we have to be laser focused on because that will promise us a really strong exit. So if it is to get younger, if it is to, you know, get reduced TV penetration, if it is to go international, then we have to, you know, how we do it can evolve, but it's not, you know, if we need to do it, doesn't change. And were those, were those um, priorities in part set during the like diligence phase of, of the buying process, or is that something that they, that you come in with your experience of building and scaling brands and they say like, take a look at the, the brand and where we're at today and where we want to go and set the direction. The private equity did have a thesis of what they wanted to achieve, but how to get yeah. there with these five key metrics. We, we established, and that was important to establish from day one so that we can all stay focused on, you know, on what, on what needs to get done. And then people can, can, can provide input in terms of here's a new way I was thinking about it, how to get there. Uh, that's fine. But what needs to get done doesn't change. How do you personally, you seem like you're a pretty calm I mean, I just met you, so maybe this is crazy <laughs> to say, but uh, you seem pretty calm and also obviously focused on the long term. How do you balance the long term vision and goals with the day to day management of the business? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And, um, and it's not easy, you know, because, um, you know, there are sometimes things arise that, you know, a fire needs to be put out, you know, or something went a little bit sideways, you know, on that path forward. Um, but I think, you know, I have to just, I've learned to take a step back and to be able to understand, okay, what's happening now? How do we, how do we fix this, but remain on our path? So, you know, the day-to-day, as a CEO, I'm always thinking about the long term. Are we on a path? Is everyone on a path? The team works on the day-to-day. -day. However, um, not everything goes right on the day-to-day. -day. And, you know, I just provide um, guidance to the team. Um, and when they don't know what to do, I provide my insight and input. Um, but it's a great question. Managing long-term and short-term is what every leader needs to do. Right. And sometimes it goes wonky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. It sounds like uh, almost like a meditation in the sense that you have to like breathe, come back to whatever it is that you're focused mm -hmm. on 
And then your job is to be that person for everyone around you. Like, even though something came up that might feel uh, hectic in the moment, we still have to stay on our path and focused mm -hmm. on, on what we're doing. I think being a mother helps with that as well <laughs> uh, because yes. you know a short-term crisis on a long-term you know child development path um, you learn to deal with those things and you know calm everyone down and it's like okay it's okay we're gonna get through this um, I do consider myself a cheerleader and a motivator um, I think it's very important to keep the team engaged um, excited and um, you know focused how would you describe your leadership? I guess maybe that is how you would describe your, your leadership mm -hmm. style. Um, if that is the case, how do you approach giving critical mm -hmm. feedback while still being the cheerleader? Mm -hmm. um, so one of my strengths is communication. And that was one of the things that I instilled from day one. You know, I do do, I, I ensure that the teams are all talking to each other. I ensure that we do once a month, we do a town hall so that everyone, even the people in the field, I think it's really important for people to understand where we're at at all times. Because sometimes when I ask them, well, you know what, it's the end of the quarter, we need this. I want people to understand the dynamic and the cadence of the business so that they feel, always feel a part of it. And that everyone in the company feels a part of something big. So communication is a critical competency skill that I think is important for any leader to have. Um, so, um, okay, so what was your question? I'm sorry, I got off in the wrong tangent. So. No, no, this is great. You can continue. Okay. I have um, other questions now. Okay. Um, but I do think, so yes, I think... Those are leadership skills of someone. And you know what? It's hard for, for like, I was always growing up, I've been in the weeds, right? You know, I've been in the trenches or in all these, you know, different facets. So, you know, being the CEO, sometimes you have to sit back and empower the team and let them do it. You can't do it yourself. You just give them the guidance to do it. And earlier on, I, you know, not here, but in some previous roles, I found that hard to do because I grew up in the trenches. But, you know, as you get, you know, as you grow the, up the ladder, you have to learn to sit back and let the team and delegate and let, let the team do it so they feel empowered. Um, but I've learned that. Do you feel like the communication and ability for you to uh, make space for others to execute on that vision were natural? for you or uh is that something that you have to work at i mean me myself like i think i enjoy being in the weeds of things i i'm also somewhat impatient i and i i have like a busy mind so i if if i'm in that situation i have to literally try to fill my time or at least get my energy out like I have to work out I have mm -hmm. to like go running or do other things so that I don't have the buildup of energy that I can put into things I shouldn't be like getting involved in. so I am exactly like you and I'm surprised that you're saying that because you sound very chill you sound super <laughs> chill, super calm, the way you talk, the way you ask the questions. So um, you, so I'm surprised, but I'm exactly that same way. I have been a doer all my life. And so I have been less of a thinker and more the doer. Um, but at one point, and it may have been during, oh, during COVID, and I was at Shiseido at the time when I realized I am separated from my team. So I need to be the thinker so that they can do it. Because how else are we going to do it? Everyone's going to be home and doing it themselves. So COVID taught me a lesson about how to be a better leader and not to have to do everything myself. Because I couldn't. And in terms of the town halls now that you're running, uh, do you prepare 
for those in the sense that you want to get across certain information mm -hmm. and and kind of like educate everyone yes. live together in what's going on within the business? Absolutely. Um, I talk to my leadership team, my direct reports, and we decide, you know, we meet once a week. We decide what we need to communicate to the audience, or to the audience, to the teams. And it is, could be a new product launch. It could be the performance of last quarter. It could be a new program we've instilled. Uh, it could be, you know, what everyone, I want everyone to know what's going on in the organization, where we are on our goals um, and to get them excited and show them all the content we've created about our net with our next launch um, because we've, um, we work hard on our, on our launches and that's an exciting part and everyone always wants to see what's new, what's coming. Um, so we share that. You know, you talked about the, like how you get somewhere might change mm -hmm. or how somebody decides to execute may change and that's fine as long as the overall vision and direction continues to stay the same how do you think about setting goals an environment where you are trying to hit aggressive growth targets and still having flexibility to like when when those things happen to keep mm. momentum and morale high while you are making progress? That's a great question because when you're in a small company and things change quickly and I saw that people were chasing things at the last minute and I think that that was one thing that we had to put a process and timeline in place to say when is, when is it pencils down, when are we landing this plane and then you know we can't change. That I, I give a rule 80-20, 80% of the things have to be, you know, planned as such, 20% can change and, you know, it's okay, but 100% of the things can't keep changing all the time. And so um, I think I've uh, put in processes to say, on our, let's say on our new product development, like let's put in the timeline of when we have to make each decision to get to the market on time and when it becomes pencils down. You can't change the name, you can't change the formula, you can't change. What you can change maybe is the ship date. You can push it out if you need to. And so we discussed that, but there are things that can change and things that can't change because we'll put the whole company, you know, it'll go in a, in a chaotic yeah. spiral down. Yeah, I guess that's also an advantage of having worked in a startup and a larger organization. Yes. Uh, I feel like in larger organizations, that's just like no questions asked. You're not right. doing things after a cutoff date. But in startup world, uh, those don't even exist. Right. And so there's a hybrid and there's a balance in between. What I, I never want to do is bring rigidity and lose the agility of a small, a small company and the ability to react to things in a quick time frame. Um, at the same time, there are certain things that would be an incredible risk to the business should you keep changing it. So, you know, it all depends. Like, do you want to change a campaign if you have time and add this or add that? Yeah, we can try and do that, but not two weeks before. You know, pencils down two weeks before. Whereas you can't change a formula three months before. Pencils down, can't change. Another fascinating thing about uh, specifically this brand is that most, if not all of the team didn't have any experience in mm -hmm. the space at all. Uh, how do you think about recruiting going forward to grow to the next stage? Is it a new phase where now the deeper experience is more valuable or mm -hmm. do you lean into the advantage of having new eyes in a space that might be stuck on patterns from the past? So both. I think it's great to have new eyes not stuck on patterns of the past or the industry. Um, and so I would say for me in the world of digital, you don't need to know beauty. You know, you just need to really understand how to engage and connect with the consumer from a digital perspective. Um, I would say in product development, it's good to have someone who understands formulas and beauty. Yeah. Um, the one person who sense. was, 
from um, was from L'Oreal was the CMO, which was great. He was the one person who understood beauty, and he came from a great company. L'Oreal's a great training ground, and um, so you know he, I came aboard and, and supported him. Um, but in many areas, you didn't have to be creative. You don't have to know beauty. Um, digital, you don't have to know beauty. And I looked outside of beauty and, and um, hired outside of beauty. So, um, but there were some places where beauty really was a key advantage, you know, to, to the position. How do you, do you have habits or uh, systems or anything that help you get into the mode of of thinking and reflecting on the business as a whole from that high level? Do you have practices that help you make space where you don't get distracted mm-hmm. by things going on yes. within the business? Yes. I am an avid reader. I have unquenchable thirst for knowledge. So I, uh, and so does, so do the founders. Um, read, uh, you know, anything and everything that crosses my, you know, iPad or computer, um, newsletters, um, books. I, you know, I get inspiration from reading articles from McKinsey. I get, and so I do have a time. It tends to be the morning. Uh, I'm the morning person. And after I work out, I love to sit with a cup of coffee and read all the newsletters that are out for the day, the papers, um, and I and I digest and I think and I write. I have a I have an iPad. And I have you know the remarkable pad, but I am a simple notebook and pencil user, and I write myself notes and then I organize my thoughts around the notes. And is that like a kind of like a brainstorming and journaling? Time just yeah. to reflect on things that you're trends that you're seeing or or anything that you're it, finding. It could be yes. It could be trends that I'm seeing. It could be you know organizational materials or software that could help the organization. It could be um, things that I just want to remember to talk to the team about that come into my mind. Because my mind doesn't shut down. It, you know, I try. Yeah. And, I try to you know, read at the end of the day to help shut it down. Like, but it's, that's an effort for me to shut down. Um, so this book just is, is, you know, it is my to-do list. It is my ideal list. It is my thought list to share. It is, you know, it's, it's a lot. And, and do, is your, is your time within the business like very structured, uh, how do you think about how do you think about structuring your your time? Or I do you, try not um, to. I try not to. The only structure that I insist upon is I have a once a, me- a once a week touch base with my team, and it could be a five minute touch base or it could be a forty five minute touch base. Tends not to be longer than that, just to make sure that is there anything you need me for? Is there anything that in my book that I want to share with you? Is there a crisis happening or an idea you want to share? Um, and then, so that's with each of them. And then every Friday uh, morning, we have a leadership team where we share, everyone shares, you know, the dynamics of what's going on or asks a question. So that's the only thing I insist on, um, you know, I, moments of sharing and face-to-face conversations together. Yeah. I guess having the unstructured time outside of that like having those anchor points and then having unstructured time also helps you make sure that you are just like in absorption and thinking mode where you can reflect and ideate. Yes. And you're not bogged down by anything specifically. And working in a big company where you never had a moment, like I was booked in a meeting from 8.30 to 7. And so I would be reading emails, at, you know, at seven o'clock at night and doing my thinking at, you know, 5 a.m. Um, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. You know, I feel so much healthier now because there's, I have time during the day, which I set aside to, to do my thinking and my dreaming and my organizing. And, um, and so does my team. 
we have Thursday, we have a Thursday rule, which we don't do in the summer because we have half day Fridays, but Thursday afternoon from one on, no meetings, no one is to have a meeting because you, everyone needs time to like sit and think or, or get things done. Yeah. So. Yeah, I find it difficult uh, unless I have practices around it. I think I, I do best in the early mornings. I'm not really a morning person. I am because I have two young kids. Uh, and now I have to be a morning person to have quiet time before right. the day starts. Um, I definitely find that the early mornings feel like the most still mm -hmm just the most still in general. So I'm able to like really sink into absorbing and thinking. Uh, and yeah, I mean, my past in like bigger companies, I worked for VF, who owns Vans and Timberland mm -hmm. yeah, sure. and the North Face. Like that was very much a culture of just like meetings all day, every day. Mm -hmm. um, and the thinking time was definitely like after hours mm -hmm. or before hours. And then you were expected to get your work done during the right. day. Yeah. There was just like no shutting yeah. off. Same here. I had the same experience. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And now yeah. I, I, I don't feel that way. And even now that I'm at a, a more senior level running, running a team, I don't feel that way at all. I, you know, yeah. everyone has their space and it's for mental health. It's, it's important for people to have space and time to think. Yeah. Do you, uh, was that something that you learned from a leader that you worked with? Did you inherently know that you needed to do that and have the confidence to be okay yeah. with making those, those changes? Yes, absolutely. I, um, I had a boss who would come into the office every day at 9.30, 12.30, would go to lunch, uh, and then leave by 6 o'clock every day. And I was watching, thinking, and here I am at the time. I'd get in at like 8 a.m. I wouldn't even go to lunch. I'd order in. And then I'd be leaving. <laughs> I'd leave at 7.30 at night. And I'm like, how? Wait a minute. And my boss is not doing that. And I learned. And he, we had a conversation. He said, it's not healthy. You're not as going to be as productive. You're going to be tired and burned out. Um, and I, you know, so I tried a few experiments where, okay, I'm going to see that. And he was right. He was right. It was getting a good night's sleep and having being able to go home and have a conversation with my husband and, and you know, and not have, like, I would go home, by the way, and be continue working. And yeah, that's not good. Yeah, it's not good. But that is how it was. I think, it, I think, I think the world has changed a lot, at least for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I feel like COVID also advanced yes. some of the uh, thinking around this. Um, this is a really random question. Do you, are you naturally the cheerleader in a parent situation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. My daughter would say, well, you have to say that you're my mom. And I'm like, no, I really believe it. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, but for me, the glass is always half full. So is that I, a um, natural uh, mm -hmm. tendency? Yes, it's always Did, been with me. Were your were your parents like that, or or was that um, learned? No, I, my parents were more that way. I think I was even more so than my parents and my brothers. Um, but it is very natural in me. I'm a very um, I consider myself a very kind person, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to join this team so bad. Um, I was raised, you know, you get bees with honey. And so um, I always saw the better in people than I never saw the, you know, the, I always believed that, you know, in the better of people, always. Yeah. What was the saying? You always get. Oh, you get, you get bees with honey. So that, yeah. you know, you, the nice, and I don't want to say nice because I, I grew up and everyone kept saying, you know, you're such a nice person. And I hate that word. I'm like, what does that mean? Um, so I was happy when I came here because I said to him, I'm a kind person. 
And I think there's a difference between kind and nice. Um, kind is you can be very firm. And this goes back, oh, this goes back to your question that I forgot to answer you on is um, what does kind mean? Kind means being very firm and direct and giving people direct feedback. So if they're not performing, I think it's kind of you to tell them in a kind way what they need to do to better perform versus be nice and say, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. So for yes. me, kindness doesn't mean being nice. Kindness means really being clear, providing clarity, uh, and helping other people is kindness, um, you know, in the right, the proper way, in a constructive way. Being in the the role that you are now, I feel like clarity in communication is probably like maybe if not the most important, one of the most important things. And knowing that you mentioned that your mind never turns off, do you have to uh, do you have to work at being clear no. in your communication or? Um. I think I answered that too quick. I would say maybe <laughs> in the past, um, but I have learned how to be more strategic as I grew up in the business world. Um, I have learned, I've had some great leaders who's taught me to sit back and try and bring it to, like if you, you know, say it in you know, 10 words um, versus you know, 25. Um, so I think I've learned to be clearer and more strategic and I think very strategically and versus how do I, how do I describe this? I think I think from the top down versus the bottom up and I know people who think from the bottom up and sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees. And so what would be an example of thinking from the bottom up? Okay. Versus top um, down. Um, I want to. I had this idea for a product that is, you know, really cooling on the skin and gives you, um, with it has aloe in there and maybe a little SPF. Versus, you have an idea for a sunscreen that cools your skin. Do you, do you know what I do? Does yeah, that yeah, yeah. make sense yeah. to you? It's like how yeah. do you, I w go ahead. I was gonna say also like uh, your priority thinking. Yeah, it might be more so like here's the priority of the business: like create a product that fits into the priority of what we're trying to do. Right. Uh, versus then you have other people that just have an idea for a product and might not even know how it fits into yes. anything until yes. after. You know, I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big uh, user of the word buckets. Okay. And for buckets, there tends to be strategic buckets. All right. And where does this fit in? So for example, this year we have to, you know, really acquire new users to the brand. That's one bucket. Uh, okay. So come back to me and tell me what are your st strategies and tactics to do that? This year, we have to expand our retail space. Come back and tell me how we're going to achieve that. So I'm a big bucket user so that it gets people prioritizing and focusing in on how to create a strategy. Because ultimately, I want to grow 10%. How am I going to grow this business this year? Think about space. Think about acquisition. Think about retention. Think about ways to do that versus wanting, I want to do this, 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 and this this year. I'm doing it from the bottom up. Think from the top down what you need to accomplish and then how you're going to get there. What, what has been the most surprising factor inside of, of the business since joining that maybe you weren't expecting from the outside? Oh, good question. What's been the most surprising factor? Um, So it's not basically the loyalty and the stickiness because that if you have a good brand that works and spews, spews kindness, that is, I think, a, a very uh, natural. Um, I think the most surprising element that when I walked into is the fact that it, um, 
There was a body care user and a skincare user, and there was no crossover. And so my goal was to say, what do we need to do to convince the body people that they need goat milk on their face? And what do we need to do to convince the, go- the, the face that they need it on their body? I think that was surprising to me, because if you buy into a store and you love the brand, then you tend to you know, want to buy into yeah. everything. But we learned a lot. We, we did some research on what they were using um, on the body. But face people were more apt to use body, but body people were not more apt to use face. And I understood that is fascinating. why. And yes, but you see, the body people were using it to, because they liked the, the natural scent to it and the moisturization on the skin, and they, and they didn't know the science behind it. So we had to teach them the science behind the goat milk, and then they got it for their face. But there was two separate pools of consumers, and we needed to bring them together and get a bigger share of wallet. So knowing that you came into a brand that's already like on the rise, mm-hmm. the ownership has changed. How do you how do you keep the um, energy of the founders and their unique perspectives both on product and on kindness or brand or however you want to put that mm-hmm. with the new mm-hmm. I'm just going to say new entity mm-hmm. so the good news is that um, first of all I have a great relationship with the founders and they're involved in the day to day and a you know before I walked in um, it was really important for me to make sure that I was aligned with the board and the founders, because if there is no alignment, then then it's not going to work long term. Um, so we, you know, aligned on you know where we need to go, you know, uh, in terms of the vision. Uh, before we put it onto paper. Um, and I check in with the boys. The boys are in um, the all the creative meetings, um, the product development meetings, marketing meetings, and they're in my leadership meetings. And so I check in with them, and I always ask them their opinion because I wanted to stay true to what they created. What they created was great. So, yeah. and so... I, I will ask them if there's something a little like hmm, doesn't seem like it may be right for the brand. I will ask them what they think, and they're so open as as founders that they're very willing to explore new ways of doing things. Um, and they're also they tell me where it's off brand chill, and I appreciate that. So I'm I'm really trying to I think I get what they wanted what they created, but there are sometimes when you think hmm, I'm pushing the envelope too much, and I ask them. <laughs> And so, you know, it's important. I really respect what they've built. I mean, that's, um, and so. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's the most important factor in being able to do that. A, having them involved and B, respecting and appreciating what they've built in order for you to continue the path forward. Yes. And I want to build upon what they built and stay true to what they built. Uh, I just want to find new avenues to do it. I mean, it sounds like an amazing uh, partnership in the sense that they created something amazing and then now get to be also involved in taking that to a much larger audience. Yes, I think they get excited. They, um, you know, we I have my own touch base with them every week. And, you know, I talk about anything from how do we build upon the kindness pillar to here's the numbers and here's what we're, you know, you know, every month, like, are we coming to the month's end? And here, that was, this was our goal and this is where we're achieving. So I do that with them before I do it with the board because I want them to feel a part of it, even though they're on the board. Um, and so I think there's just, again, it's that communication and making sure that everybody is aware of what's going on. No surprises that, um, I think it keeps the communication lines open and keeps everyone feeling empowered and heard. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I hope there uh, was something in here you can edit and get to. You know, it was a fun conversation. Okay. If anything, 
Uh, it's my own fault for jumping around, but it was super helpful for me. Good. Well, yeah. I, you know, I jump around too. So, you know, I, I'm like I trying, I'm trying not to ask you other random questions <laughs> and keep you for longer. Uh, yeah. Thank you again. for doing You're that. welcome. Thank you, Sean. It was really nice to meet you. I'm going to go okay. ahead and stop recording. Okay. Um, if I can. If any other question comes to mind, please email me. That, yeah. You know, you want to fill in for anything or whatever. That's. Yeah, this was awesome. Uh, yeah. Hopefully I didn't follow my own curiosity too much. I'm just really curious. Uh, I think like the leadership aspects of it and like how you view leadership is fascinating because most I feel like most of my audience are founders or um, interested in entrepreneurial ventures. Many of them probably haven't even worked in like a big, bigger corporate structure. So to hear from somebody that's done both sides and now is running a running a, a larger brand to hear how you think about priority setting and strategy, I think is really fascinating and also like uh, clarifying. You know what I think really helps me is I've had experience selling brands before. So I know, I know what it takes to celebrate, to sell a brand and what people look for. And that helps yeah. Because, you know, everyone wants a successful sale. I think we're all, you know, we're all holding hands tightly yeah. on that one. But it, what it takes to sell, I think my experience, because we sold Frederick Fakai to Procter & Gamble. Um, so I've been through a process um, on the brand side to a strategic. And, you know, I bring that experience to them and I tell them, like what happens, what we needed to do so that they understand why I'm insisting on certain areas. Um, yeah. and, um, and I know what a strategic looks for, for, I know how important it is to have a solid DNA and, uh, you know, and a portfolio that with a, you know, uh, a portfolio that builds up and ladders up to, to, you know, to one thing versus 50 things. And so, you know, like I bring that, experience where it's why I think I was hired. I bring the experience of beauty and of an equity sale and I want to yeah. help the team get there. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the sale process like for that during that? Uh, I'm just curious yeah. personally. Yeah. Um, Oh, a sale process is really intense because, you know, you have a lot of people who come to the table. Not everyone is interested, but they want to hear the story. Um, yeah. And um, <laughs> you can tell the people who are very interested by the questions that they're asking and, whether, you know, what the follow-up is going to be. It was, um, it's a nerve-wracking, but a really exciting process. I also sold, uh, two years ago, I sold Bare Minerals to Orvion. And so, you know, I was, again, on the brand side, selling to a private equity company. And um, it's nerve-wracking because, you know, it's interesting. You have to present to at least seven different companies, right, in order to get too interested. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the different questions they ask. And, and you can even say, well, this brand would never work for them. Like, you know, it wouldn't work because of the questions yeah. they asked. So. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like it. What it what an interesting uh, world of the private equity world is too. I mean, talk about making long term bets. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and everyone yeah. is different. Though you know, I've worked before. There's you know, there's different personalities within the private equity companies as well. You know. Um, yeah. And different different strengths, I think, and we, and weaknesses, but with everybody. Yeah. Too. I guess like it's a nerve wracking thing on both sides. Like the, in the private equity seat, it's like, I hope everything's as it looks right on the outside of this deal. And that my thesis actually ends up being viable mm -hmm. at the end of this. And it's kind of like a shot in the dark until yeah. you get inside, I would imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, they you have a very um, detailed um, uh, room where they put all, all the diligence room where they, you know, that's where all the data sits and the, you know, the buyers are, you know, into that data and have lots of consulting firms asking us a gazillion questions yeah. to <laughs> uncover if there's anything that we could be polishing up a little too bright, you know, yes. so... <laughs> Yes. So it's interesting, but it is nerve wracking for both sides. So, Yeah. Well, thank you again for doing this. It was great to meet you. Bread, receive, bread, receive, bread, receive, bread.